Giving us a five-star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your ear holes, you know what to do. Give us a five-star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. Welcome to another episode of Son of a Pitch, a podcast made by two young idiots in Adland who talk to really smart people. Now, who's the smart person we have on this episode, Max? Uh, we have the CSO, the Chief Strategy Officer of McCann, an agency in Sydney, uh, Frances Clayton. And she was just a pleasure to talk to. She was. Probably one of the smartest, most humble, bubbly, nice incredible people we've had on this podcast so far sorry about uh that wow. to anyone else who came before literally every other <laughs> guest we've had on this podcast no, but under the bus she's incredible for one reason and that's because uh francis i think uh knows exactly what strategy is about and that's about exploring and she was what max she was the head of an exploring department where they traveled around the world and basically just talked to people to find insights, which then led to multi-million, billion-dollar advertising campaigns. So, if you want to hear what it's like to be paid to get a ticket on a train to travel through China or explore Russia just watching people go about their everyday lives, then this is the episode for you. She basically lived the dream. I don't know how she got away with it for so long, um, but she had a pretty amazing career, or she has a pretty amazing career. Um, and if you're a planner yeah. at McCann, you're probably going to be very jealous of her career and you're going to want exactly what she had to, right? I think, I think Icon should have an exploring department. I'm going to come back and say, send me around the world. I'll learn things. Maybe I won't, but maybe I will. And then we'll see what happens. It's yeah. a, it, how does that go for a pitch? I think that goes really well. And speaking of the pitch... Uh, Fran takes us through what is probably one of the weirdest solutions that we've ever heard to a problem that we've given someone on the, the program so far. Um, and basically, the, the challenge is, how do you get people to drink civet poo coffee? Yeah. Civet poo. How do you get people to drink shit coffee? I think we're going to title it. Literally shit episode. coffee. Yeah. And she had, a pretty, she had a pretty cool answer. So, if you're interested in robots, the apocalypse... Uh, coffee then this is the episode for you enjoy francis clayton welcome to the son of a pitch podcast thank you it's good to be here it's good to have you it's been a bit of a theme in the last couple of episodes where we've had a lot of kiwi guests uh john halpin jason lonsdale this is true and now we've got Francis Clayton. Yes. Is it true that you are a kiwi do you come from across the ditch i do i've um I've lived in Australia for ten, almost 10 years and prior to that I lived in the States for about five years. So I have a strange mixed up accent. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, lived in New Zealand for the first sort of 25 years of my life. Actually married to a Kiwi. So both my kids, although they were born in Australia, are technically New Zealanders, which they're very proud of. And we, we like to make the distinction as much as I love Australia. <laughs> 
Do they have Australian or Kiwi accents? They have Australian accents, which is oh, that must very difficult for time. me. When yeah, when Rose talks about coming here. So uh, what brought you here to <laughs> Australia? Um, so we were living in New York in the sort of mid two thousands. Had had an awesome time over there. Then sort of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the GFC hit. New York got pretty depressing. I was, had I had sort of family back in New Zealand who I wanted to be closer to, and then I actually have a ton of really good mates in Sydney. So we um, we made the move. I think I was homesick for New York for about four years, but now very happy to to be living in Sydney. But you studied at UNSW, right? That was yeah, I did. Yeah, that yes, was before. I did. I um, I did my masters of commerce at UNSW in 2001. Sure. And then actually returned back to New Zealand where I had, that's where I started out in, in advertising at Mojo, Auckland, um, a long time ago. Sure. So w- when you were at UNSW, I stalked your LinkedIn page and oh, there was yeah. this thing called the Peter D. Walker. Yes, Industrial oh, Industrial Marketing. marketing. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about oh this? Oh my God, this is hilarious. So I, uh, I think it was like, my mid-year exams and my my master's degree and I had been um, enjoying the the nightlife in Sydney a little too much um, so I was cramming majorly um, for my exams and there was one uh, I think I had four and I thought great I've got three of them nailed but the last one I totally left to the last minute so I stayed up all night crammed went in there and thought who gives us stuff and um, it must have been that uh, I guess that uh, sort of fearless attitude because I ended up topping the class wow. randomly, um, which meant that I then got to tutor that class. And it was in industrial marketing, which now I'm not even sure the contents of that, <laughs> of that class. But yeah, I think actually, I think that that attitude of, um, you know, what will be will be and kind of letting go a little mm. bit and not being too anxious and, and too paranoid about the outcome probably let me um, succeed in a weird way. And so I tutored that class in the second half of the year and then won, won that prize. Awesome. Yeah, so it was really around uh, international business um, and and some of those sort of where, where marketing meets, I guess, business theory. Did you go into that kind of university subject already with a bit of an understanding about uh, marketing and 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 maybe a passion for it, or yeah. did you know that you wanted to be in marketing? I guess is yeah, really my question. Yeah, that's a good question. At school. I was an art student, like I did painting and printmaking and English literature. Um, And then I got, uh, I think one of my friends made me do this thing called um, Young Entrepreneurs, uh, where you had to build a business at school. Um, And somehow I got stuck as like my role was the um, was the marketing person on the team. And yeah, so I sort of fell into that at school. We made we made these our product was uh, photo albums for, for school ball, like prom ball photos um, with, with quotes all through them that were pretty hilarious. Um, and, yeah, so I had a lot of fun, like, thinking about how to promote that stuff without knowing anything about advertising and marketing, uh, just thinking about how do you get, you know, it was very competitive, like, how do we beat the other teams and how do we get noticed and, um, you know, create some buzz. Um, so, weirdly, I think that 
planted the seed um, because I probably would have gone on to do a fine arts degree if it hadn't been for somebody going, you know, there's a there's an intersection between art and commerce, which is, you know, commercial creativity. Um, so I think it probably started all the way back there. Brilliant. Yeah. And from there, I guess, from the university days, how did you find your way into advertising? Did you go straight into... No, I didn't. I... I almost went into my family business, which was some of my parents had a fashion brand and I'd done everything from, um, you know, production to sales to sweeping the floor and helping design ranges. What's that brand called? It's, it's a New Zealand brand. At the, at, it's, it's no longer around. It was it was big in the eighties. Oh, we've got to go into the archives. <laughs> we will find. This. Are we it's talking cool. tracksuits? Is no, there a lot of actually, fluoro? it was it was um, beautiful. I mean, a lot of the um, the clothes that they made at the time it was sort of before fast fashion. So beautifully made coats, um, suits, you know, and and um, yeah, I look back at some of the photos of the you know the the fashion show in New Zealand at the time was the Benson and Hedges fashion show which oh was, wow right Just when, obviously <laughs> <prestigious>. <laughs> um, and you know lots of shoulder pads and yeah you know amazing kind of 80s fashion the, the brand was Suzanne Gregory and it was my dad's name is Gregory but he thought that nobody would buy a, a fashion brand if it wasn't a woman's name so it was yeah right it was called Suzanne Gregory in hindsight do you think that and, was a good decision well when I I got involved you know and it was they were sort of 20 years into it at that point so I got involved sort of in the late 90s and we went into retail at that point we just called it Gregory because I was like that's who you ah, are right. um, yeah, yeah. and uh and and shifted the brand that way so it's still around in New Zealand as Gregory but um owned by other people where we've got to go to the archives get get into the the vaults I think of, and of the up. Benson and Hedges that's New Zealand it. fashion show absolutely we'll find a magazine <laughs> we, we have a way we, we've got the planning research on our side you know what they say about brands with two first names? What's that, Max? Can't trust brands with two first names. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I, I guess, did, did you use that as a launch pad to get into advertising? Or did you just kind of like figure out that uh, maybe the marketing side of the business is the bit that is actually really interesting to me and I have a talent? Um, yeah. In- I, I think um, I... So my first real job, not... Uh, in the family business was at a small um, strategic research company in New Zealand called Focus Research, which Mm. is still around. They actually, they created the Needscope technology, which they sold to TNS globally. Um, But they kept, they kept kind of consulting research strategy um, business going in New Zealand. Um, So that was my first job where I learned to be a researcher first and foremost. Cool. What was the need scope technology? It's uh, so it's quite you'll you'll probably come across it at some point okay. in your career. Although it's not as popular anymore, but it's based on um, archetypes, Jungian archetypes. Sure. And it is a mapping, segmentation, um, strategic tool um, that that helps you kind of look at a market um, instead of I guess the dimensions are. Um, uh, archetypal dimensions and they had both a kind of a qual and a quant methodology around that okay it's a bit like a kiwi roy morgan 
Well, it's <laughs> bit 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 more. Uh, it's, bit it's, more it's Roy Morgan than... with a little bit more psychology. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Cool. And that. So I, I think this is a theme through a lot of players' yeah. careers, right? Starting off in research. Mm. Has that been kind of mm-hmm. a great base for you in your career? Yeah, I would recommend that to any planner um, and it's kind of what you guys are doing now right um, ask questions ask good questions learn how to listen and that's the I reckon the, the foundation the fundamentals um, in terms of getting to the truth which mm. is really like boil our job down to one thing you know find the truth um, so as a researcher I learned kind of the rigor and the science of that um, which was great and then after that, I had to unlearn a lot of that stuff um, because at the time, researchers were taught to be very um, removed and objective, right? You don't put yourself into the picture. And I think what I learned later in my career, um, probably mostly at Saatchi, was um, to get involved, to walk a mile in people's shoes, to be um, subjective, you know, mm-hmm. to be... To be uh, to, to find real empathy mm-hmm. and intuition, mm-hmm. um, which would be kind of heresy in the uh, in the research um, world that I grew up in, anyway. But I think that you know being able to being able to balance the two, yeah. um, to to switch between being kind of in something immersed in it and being out of it, and being able to look kind of at it from a more removed perspective is is a real skill. And was it that desire on? wanting to focus on your intuition that led you to a planning role? Yes, I think so. Actually, what led me to a planning role was that I was, as a researcher, I was presenting uh, to clients, often with their agency in the room, Mm. um, and handing over all these insights. Yeah. And then being really jealous that yeah. I wasn't the person who got to do something with them. Yeah. And so then a friend of mine actually had switched from research to planning and planning wasn't even there, – there weren't many planners in uh, New Zealand in the early 2000s. So there, were, there wasn't a lot to look up to or even to really know what the job was, um, which is the case, I think, for a lot of things in New Zealand. And that's a good thing, you know, yeah. um, that you don't follow too much, that you make, make your own version of it up. But I had some great people to learn from as well um, who weren't necessarily traditional planners. So my first role at Mojo, I think I was actually, um, I was actually employed by OptiMedia, which was part of, you know, it was all sitting in the same room, very little difference between, you know, media and creative I sat across the desk from the head of planning for Opti Mm -hmm. and then I kind of had this role that straddled both kind of Mojo projects and OptiMedia projects. So I was, you know, learning about, um, you know, Roy Morgan, which we had in New Zealand. Um, (laughs) The bane of Max's existence. Yeah, as well as um, using my research. We we were, um, Mojo at the time, they called us, they didn't call us planners, they called us reporters because they liked this idea that they had these young people who were going out and and kind of reporting on people and culture and bringing stories back. And I think that was quite good in in my early 20s not to think of yourself as a strategist, you know, but, but to think of yourself as somebody who's kind of... The, the person who goes out and finds the stories and the truth and, and feeds the, the agency and the creative process. But 
I learned, you know, the strategic tools at the same time. Sure. That's, that's interesting, like treating a strategy role as being like a journalist. Yeah. Did you have any, inter- uh, any interesting interactions in the field or any people that, that have stuck with you to this day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's probably the things that, the things that have stuck with me the most are the um, experiences I've had with real people in the real world. Mm. All, all the way back then, I actually did this project which was to understand the growing um, Indian and Asian population in Auckland. So it was before, I think now, like one in five or one in four Aucklanders are uh, 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 Asian or Indian mm. um, born. But that was just starting to sort of grow at the time. So I, um, and, and the other thing I learned was like, don't rely on, you know, recruiting houses and all that sort of stuff. Just get out there and, make connections and find people yeah right and i remember finding i I don't know how but i got introduced to this group of indian women and i got to spend quite a lot of lot of time with them they had this saying that they were more indian than the indians in india um (laughs) because once you leave your country you hold on so tight to you know your, your culture and as an expat i i get that i think i love new zealand more than you know my friends who live there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's l- lots of little things like that. And the, the stories stick with you so much more than, you know, reading something in a research report or finding a data point in a mm. stack. And did that, did that insight inform a campaign? We were doing the research for one of the big energy companies right. in New Zealand. Um, and it kind of did because we, we had a, gosh, we had... Um, one of the things that this energy company did uh, was, and they might still do it actually, they sponsored um, the lighting up of lots of Auckland landmarks. And they mm. also did a big thing called something about the Christmas lights or something. Um, so we said, um, we've got to do something with Diwali, um, at the, so with the Indian Festival of Lights. Diwali so, Festival, yeah. Um, so we... What's so the Diwali <laughs> festival? Sorry, am I sounding uncultured? Yeah, so big, I mean, big culture, Indian cultural festival, um, very celebrated now in, sure. in, in, in this country as well, um, but, but kind of new at the time um, to celebrate that. For, for, for uh, it was certainly celebrated in those cultures in, in Auckland and in New Zealand, but uh, for a big uh, New Zealand brand to champion that um, and to shift from just kind of um, traditional Western things like Christmas in the park, yeah. lights to um, to sponsoring that. Um, I'm sure we used it in other ways as well, but um, yeah. As a young planner, that must have made you feel pretty powerful, right? I mean, you're having like a big impact on culture, even though y- yeah. You know- I just think I look back on um, I look back on my time as a younger planner and think I didn't know how lucky I was. Like you really don't know it at the time, right? Mm. Um, you know, I I had the um, the the opportunity to work with some incredible creative leaders in New Zealand really early in my career, and um, totally took it for granted because I didn't realise how you know how special that was. Um, so I think it's only when you kind of you know get a bit older and look back that you think, gosh, that was that was something. Can you tell us a bit about these these leaders? Oh, so many people. Um, my when I was at Mojo in Auckland before I went to the States, we had um, Nick Worthington come to live in New Zealand, and he was straight out of I think he'd been at BBH for a yeah. long time. Uh-huh. Um, 
but he's still at he's now at Colenso in Got New it. Zealand um, and has been for quite a long time just at the time probably one of the top creative people in the world comes to live in New Zealand um, and ends up being the you know the the creative leader at Mojo um, had no idea how lucky I was but did some did some awesome work and, and learned a lot um, learned a lot from him um, and then you know I went to New York um, when I was I was only 26 years old. Wow. And at the time I felt like I knew everything because that's what you feel when you're 26. And there, you know, got to work with some incredible creative people as well and probably didn't know how awesome it was at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, people like eventually Jerry Graff, who's now got his own agency oh in God. New York. Oh, my God, yeah, right. Um, and, and before him, Tony Granger. Um, and, 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 and then all the people, you know, all the amazing creative leaders under them as well. Um, and that's, you know, that's why sometimes, you know, if, if you're tempted to kind of go, well, it'd be nice to go back to research and, and have the time to do the deep work. But the real, the real reward is, is working with, with creative minds like that and seeing those insights turned into something really exciting. It seems to me like fortune really does favor the bold. Uh, in this career and a lot of people have made that jump over to New York and have been quite successful and as you say you kind of work with these creative heavyweights you don't really realize that the Mm -hmm. time are going to be just visionaries for the future if you were a young person kind of like Max and I today and you Mm -hmm. were umming and ahhing about making a leap or doing something that kind of big uh, what advice would you give them? The most important thing is who you work with if you don't have chemistry with the people you work with it doesn't matter if you're at the fanciest agency or working with the most kind of revered or famous people because without that without that chemistry you know you won't be your best that's why I think you know when it comes to interviewing for jobs or considering a move to another place put that far away you know above everything else in terms of is there that do do you want to spend time with those people Mm. just as a human being you know everything else aside um because if you have that on the on the shitty days you'll pull each other through you know you'll be you'll you'll inspire each other and um and pick each other up when you're down and and all of those things so and that's been a you know a huge part of my career is um is is the partnerships i've had and the you know the friends i've had along the way were there any massive mistakes that led to that learning for you yes yes there were definitely um you don't have to name names no i mean i spent uh, there, there was there was about two years i pushed through it and i think that's worth something too because you've got to build resilience you've got to be able to still you know, learn and grow and cut through even when the conditions aren't great. But when I look back at this particular two years in my career, you know, the, the almost the cultural social environment of the place at the time that didn't really allow people to be themselves was so limiting. It's just so limiting. And, you know, I, I just think it's the, the most important thing in our industry to be creative then we have to create this um, kind of awesome 
trusting, supportive, inclusive environment. And and there was a while there where I didn't have that. Um, but, you know, you learn from that too. How do you make the best of a bad situation in that way? In that particular case, when the, the culture of a place is um, a bit broken, it does take a critical mass of people to change that. So I would, I would say it's unlikely that one person can change it alone. And if you get to that point where you feel like you're in the wrong place, because um, you feel it in your bones, right? Mm. Get out. And if not, find the people who are around you who feel the same way um, and change it. But I think I, I think I put up with it for too long in retrospect. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of people have that kind of determination. You know, when things start going wrong, you dig deeper. Mm. And, and that's a big part of, of my upbringing is to soldier through it. Um, but one th- I think one good thing to look out for is, is it affecting the work, right? Like, I think I regret it most because I look back and go, nothing good came, nothing really good came of that. No great work came of it. So if you look at your situation and go, not only do I feel a bit shit about this, but we're not making anything good, um, then that's a great kind of uh, reason to to make a move. I guess the the kind of inference I draw from that is that you feel like the work is probably the most important thing in the career, right? Looking back over the work or using it to get to your next spot. Yeah, it's really everything else flows from that. Well, actually, people and culture creates great work and great work creates financial success and fame for the agency. When you make great work together with people that you love, it's a fucking good feeling. Mm. Um, And it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen every year. And, you know, when you go a couple of years and you've kind of just, you know, made good work and nothing that's really kind of lit you up that's when you look back and go don't let that happen for too long don't let that go on for too long because life's life's short um and for no other reason than making great work feels great and is the fun part and is the thing that grows brands and is the thing that actually our clients want even though you know they struggle to buy it to get it (laughs) (laughs) when they do they love it um so keep that you know, in your mind, because that I think uh, well, there's, there's some sort of great quote which I'll get wrong, but it's um, it, it, the message is that the 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 most motivating force in our lives is is purpose, right? Without that, when you hit the difficult times, your motivation wanes. But the only thing that keeps you going through is the promise of you know what's possible and and those awesome ideas that you can put out into the world and um, that make an impact. And now it's time for a break. Are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life? Perhaps you know more about XL formatting than your significant other's private parts, resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organizational food chain. You may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in National Geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam. Well, 
have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning bootcamp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing? Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. Going back, going back to your career track. Yes, uh, we did a bit. We did, but we got on a lot of tap. We got on a little stuff. There was a very insightful. It was good. I don't know where we, we left off. Where were we? So you're Mojo. in New York. You so, just okay, got to New York. I just got yeah, to left New York. Auckland. I just got to New York, and I'll tell you the story. I um, so I was 26 years old. Grew up in New Zealand. Um, I'd only ever been to New York once before, mm. which was a few months earlier, um, and. I turn up at work, they, the HR person says, I'll show you to your office, which to begin with, I was like, an office? what? Wow. Like, what? <laughs> and I, she took me upstairs and opened the door to this office with, um, you know, these beautiful big windows with a view of the Empire State Building. And um, I'm trying to keep a straight face, thinking like, am I being punked? Like, what's going <laughs> on here? <laughs> And she said, you know, and Sandy, who is my boss, Sandy will be along to see you soon. You know, here's the phone, call this if you need anything, I'll see you later. And I literally, I closed the door and I did that dance, you know. Yeah, the happy dance. The happy dance. (laughs) And then I called my (laughs) mum. Well, it's a a shame you didn't have FaceTime back then because then you would have been able to show the view. (laughs) Pulled off the greatest con in history. I was like, oh, and I felt like such a fraud. I was like what the hell you know they've got the wrong person they've shown me to this office i've got the view of the empire state building and actually about a week later um sandy my boss who became an awesome still a a great friend of mine said to me i've hired this girl adine from south africa and she's going to come and um you guys are going to pair pair up and be a planning team and share the office and so when adine arrived from south africa she did the same thing i was like (laughs) i was just there a week ago um but you know the sad thing is i think four years later i'd stopped looking at that view you know i'd stopped kind of walking into that office and going holy shit because we all just get so used to our our surroundings right but i'll never forget that moment where i was like what has happened somebody's made a mistake (laughs) do you think that's because in your advertising is so revered like ah no i I, was it was pre-gfc yeah um the agency was doing really well i had had this amazing um uh mentor who had championed me in new zealand um a a woman called kate smith who i just caught up with actually a couple of months ago shout outs to kate massive shout out to kate smith who um when i told her that i was going to new york she said, I'll help you get some meetings because she was very well. She was a planner, older than me, very well connected. She got me three meetings. And one of those was at Saatchi, New York, um, with, with Sandy Thompson, who she knew. And uh, 
some time later, probably years later, I found out that she had written a, um, she'd written a long reference for me, which is why Sandy hired me. Sandy said, I'd, I'd hired you before I met you. Wow. So that stayed with me as well in terms of that Kate did that for me, that she did it without telling me. And yeah, the, the gratitude I feel for that and the, you know, try to sort of do that for, what, for what other people. What a real boss. Life. What a great boss. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was good. And that led to me getting a big job for that stage in my, my mm. life. I mean, I was definitely in over my head, but at the same time, I, coming from New Zealand, I had worked across, you know, 10 brands at a time. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, small agency, lean team, uh, worked with some great people. So when I stepped into a role, I stepped into a planning director role in New York on PNG. I actually, you know, it was a big job for that stage in my career, but I actually felt like I could handle it because I had so much thrown at me um, in, in New Zealand, even on a tiny scale. They're still brands, right? Yeah. Um, so I went into this job in New York where I was only working on two brands. And I was like, was that all? Which, um, which were the brands? Head and Shoulders. Yes. <laughs> and which is, yeah, I, I think it's. At the time, it was the number one shampoo brand in the world. Wow. wow. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, because I think over 50% of the world's population have dandruff. But then also Olay, and from there, I, I, I got this awesome job with Sandy as an explorer. That, that was actually my title. Um, wow. We did see this. So yes. It, and it, it, it almost seemed like there was a department called the... Mm-hmm. Ex- well, uh, I might be getting this wrong. Explorify or Exploring? Or? Exploring. Exploring. Got Exploring. It. Yeah. yeah. And this this was Sandy's um, real passion. She had spent uh, 10 years in Asia as the head of planning for Saatchi. And she realized quite quickly that she would go to focus groups and no matter what the subject, she'd hear the same answers. Mm. So she got a van. She hired a van and an interpreter and she took five planners across China for a month. And they wrote a book called One in a Billion out of it. And they had an incredibly successful run, Saatchi, in, in, in China, both in terms of new business and awards, just from spending time with real people in the real world. And that was the thing I learned most at Saatchi was to get out of mm. the industry, you know, to get out of the boardroom, away from your desk, have real experiences. Like if you want to understand baby food, mm. don't put parents in a focus group room you know go and spend some time at a daycare center or with a six-month-old who's just learning to eat solids or you know do, do those things have those experiences because that's where the truth is so I did that all over the world actually um I did exploring in Russia China Middle East all through America um and Europe which was awesome that sounds like the best job ever. It, it does. Was. Like it it was be pretty good. Oh my God. And it was right when blogging was like just becoming a thing. So we would meet people, spend time in their homes, go to universities, ride trains, have these experiences and then blog at kind of in the evening um, so that the rest of the agency could kind of follow along. Uh, and by the time, often by the time we got back from one of these missions the kind of the insights and the stories would already be kind of in in the work which is good i'm super interested to know how um meeting all these different people in different cultures how that sort of shaped your process to find that key insight right how did you find that little that truth yes uh get lost 
get lost. Um, okay, well, Vince, we got to go. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get out of here. What are we oh, even yeah, doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, it's like one of those, it's one of those inconvenient answers that yeah. um, the, more you, the more you plan, the less likely you are to find something interesting. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's this little model. It's like three circles. The middle one is like what you know you know. The next one is what you know you don't know. And the last one is what you don't know you don't know. And I think the philosophy of exploring was if you want to find what you don't know you don't know, you've got to get out mm. beyond, you know, your bubble. Mm. And you've got to be prepared to leave the, the interview guide, you know, um, leave the plan, leave the path, get lost you know, you'll find the best insight when you let go a bit of what you think the answer should be. Mm. Um, so it taught me to, you know, don't judge, stay naive, you know, that, that point about if you start thinking you know, you, you'll end up in a pretty boring place. Yeah. Yeah, I remember going to the Middle East for the first time and, you know, having grown up as a, like a little feminist, independent woman, um, I had all these ideas in my head about women in in Saudi Arabia by spending time there, you know, having my judgments challenged and ultimately realising that we are all so much more alike than we are different. That was, that was such a gift because I think we don't know how pre-programmed we are and the ability to question your own assumptions gets you to really interesting places the thing is i just i don't see a job in australia where a client would be willing to pay for me to go on a train ticket through china so do we need to go to new york to find a job like that or is or is, is that something that does exist here are you creating it is it at mccann <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. Uh, uh, your plan is going to listen to this and go, where's my Russia ticket? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point And I have this conversation all the time, actually. But it's a bit of a cop out to say that the job doesn't exist. Now, that's a slightly privileged kind of place to, to come from because I had this awesome experience where I was funded to do this stuff. But, but I was, it was paid for by the client. And... Um, that was due to, you know, the leadership of Saatchi at the time saying, this is the value, right? Like, we'll do this for you and you will get so much more out of it than if we did a focus group or if we sat in our offices and, you know, pulled stuff out of our ears. So, so I think there's two answers. One, there's a way to present the commercial value of it, which allows you to build it into a, an agency structure. But the other thing is, it's free and easy, mm. right? And you can do it every day of your life. So when you get on the bus on the way home, instead of, you know, flicking through your Instagram feed, mm. um, just go into that explorer reporter mindset, mm. you know? Look, that's all, that's all we did. It wasn't rocket science. Mm. We went out there and we looked and we listened and we got involved. In fact, if you... If you plan it and pay for it, it becomes transactional and, and the truth disappears. Yeah. Um, but if you have the courage just to strike up a conversation with a stranger or spend the time to take the time to kind of explore and get a little bit lost, then um, you, do find, you do find great stuff. Vince has, I think, one of the all-time best sort of eavesdropping uh, 
terms that you've coined, which is opaling. Oh, which is opaling, looking yeah. at what how much people have on their balance when they when they pay in front of you on their Opal card. Oh wow! Yeah, and judging them for it. I know. Of, <laughs> I've seen a lot of people judge a lot of people for Opal balances. I, I, yeah, it's it's terrible. But yeah, it's true. Like those nuggets do come out of everyday life when you yeah. you can kind of sit yeah, back and, sure. and look at it. Now you mm-hmm. went from Saatchi and Saatchi to DDB, if I'm not wrong. Mm. I I sort of did. I went from Saatchi and Saatchi, New York. Back to Sydney, I was still at Saatchi for a little while doing a global role and then I felt like I needed to be involved in the Australian market. So mm. I went back to Mojo for a couple of years ah. uh, in Sydney and that was that was awesome, working on, you know, great Aussie brands, working on um, Lion, Nescafe. Um, poo. We'll get there. Yes. This is another great story. I had uh, – I, I was I – was, one week overdue with my first child and Leif Stromness, who's a great friend of mine, who's the um, managing uh, partner at, uh, of strategy at DDB. We're trying to get him on the podcast. Yeah, we've got okay, him scheduled. You will we've love got that. Him scheduled. He, um, he, uh, he and I had met a couple of times and he called me up and he said, um, we want to talk to you about coming to work with us. He said, I said, thank you, but I'm, you know, I'm a week overdue for um, having my first child Uh, and it was December and he said oh okay great good luck I'll call you in January and I remember thinking like yeah right nobody's gonna uh, you know want really want uh, uh, you know new mum to to come and work with them and I I sort of wrote it off and thought I won't I won't hear from him and literally you know I have a four-week-old and he calls me up and says come in and talk to us you know, I met, went and met with, with some of the people at DDB and they're all of the other things there in terms of the, the job and, the, and the, the skill sets, but their openness to having a, the, the sort of flex, openness to flexible working and um, having a, a new mum. I think I interviewed, I interviewed with the CEO with a five-week-old in my arms um, and then I started working with them uh, when Rose was a couple of months old, just, just a few days a week. And that was just an example of you know the the culture at DDB, which is really lovely. So they'll always have a, a special place in my heart. But yeah, I also that's where I met Nick Taylor, um, who's my sort of partner in crime, um, and worked on McDonald's, on Volkswagen, on Westpac. Yeah, just worked 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 with some awesome people at DDB, um, and then fast forward to now. So I've been at McCann for a year, um, and that was really a choice to. Um, just a choice to grow again, you know, and to get out from under a very successful, stable, stable, solid brand mm. in the market, which is DDB, and test ourselves a bit more and um, and experience something new and different. And you know, then McCann is a pretty exciting place to be um, in terms of a global network, doing some really fantastic work in different parts of the world. Does the um, philosophy between McCann and DDB differ a bit? Because I it know does. DDB's propositions of motion at scale or something along the lines of that. And is McCann, something something yeah. like that. I mean, this is a new they've 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 developed this over the last year or so. But but um, the DDB that I experienced, which um, which was fantastic, is so informed by Burnback's thinking, just as true today as it ever was. Um, but also really informed by, you know, the marketing science and, you know, Les and Peter's work 
um, mm. obviously with, with Adam and Eve and the network. So the importance of emotion, the importance of fame and cultural impact and um, all of those things. So they're not distinctive or ownable necessarily, um, but I think that, that DDB practices those principles really well. Um, but they're things that we should all, as planners, know and understand and, and use. And then what I love about, two things that I love about the McCann philosophy are, um, you know, this equity that's over 100 years old of the truth well told. It doesn't get much better than that. Like, yeah. that's, mm. that's, for me, that's what the heart of planning is. Yeah. Which is just a new, finding a new perspective on the truth. I think it applies to planning just as much as it applies to creativity. And then the other thing that I love about the McCann philosophy is the company's mission is to help brands play a meaningful role in people's lives because I think that's the new bar, um, that it's not enough just to evoke emotion or entertain. Um, you have to do things that matter uh, to real people, whether that's you know, you know not necessarily kind of worthy or purpose-led mm. um, but I think we have to make a meaningful brands have to make a meaningful impact if they if they want to lead is that diving into the realms of consumer experience or is that just a better understanding of like ads that have a better understanding cultural of impact yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it starts with like you know going back to that real people in the real world um, you know we are bombarded with you know so much more information than we ever were before what what really matters to people you know if we mm. just step outside our industry for a minute and and start with what are people concerned about what are people hoping for you know with all of this competition for their time and attention what really matters to them um and and start there and focus our uh, strategic and creative energies around that and and then brands really can have so much more impact and and it's not you know this this idea that that brands can make a difference is not crazy because all of our institutions are fucked and our our vote as citizens doesn't mean very much anymore mm. but when it comes to brands we get to vote every time we buy. So mm. I think that brands are more accountable than any of the other institutions mm. in terms of what people want. There's this inbuilt democracy, and that's why I think that when the brand focuses on what matters to people, um, then people will reward that because they have some influence through their purchasing power. So, you know, and, and I look at the, the work that's, put McCann on the map over the past four or five years, things like Fearless Girl, mm. the the recent um, March for Our Lives, sort of gun violence work is incredible. Um, even um, in in the States, the work that um, was done this year for Microsoft sure. um, with the adaptive controller and, um, and then for Verizon with the first responders, it's, you know, it really is starting with stuff that's meaningful. Yeah. But is, is, is meaning enough? Because I know with the, the Fearless Girl campaign, great message, but backed up by, I know it was run by State Street, who didn't have many uh, female members on the board, or le less than parity. Yeah, yeah, and you sh it's, it's, a good, it's a good one to dig into, because that was actually like fully reported on. 
and discussed in I think I can't remember if it was the New York Times, but their commitment to that yeah. and their performance in those in those areas, um, while not perfect, was really intentional. They have a real and deep kind of commitment to those issues. And right from the beginning, we're saying, we're not perfect. That's the point. Yeah, absolutely. And and here are all the things we're doing to change things for us and for the the industry. So they're pretty active in that space. There's a degree of self-awareness about it. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that's the other thing. Don't, if, if we all wait till till we're perfect rather than kind mm. of putting things out there and committing to change mm. um, then brands won't do anything like yep. look at coke you know mm. they're really they're really um, making a huge commitment to uh, you know understanding and improving the sustainability and ocean plastic issue yeah. without you know shutting their doors mm. um, and and we can do more on the inside than the outside, right? Like you can solve those issues when we look for opportunities for brands to grow and prosper while also um, solving those problems. Mm. It was like you were saying before, right, about the interagency culture. You got to start a revolution from the inside. Yeah. And that's almost like a Trojan horse into getting a company to be more ethical. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, do yeah. all the good things. Yeah. And that's that thing about the vote, right? The consumer vote. Mm. Um mm. Because, uh, yeah, I love that, that companies are more accountable and have to, like, you think about the Cokes, the banks, the, you know, all of these uh, brands that are having to take action to do better, to step up. Because if they don't, they lose their customers. Yeah. So I guess this is a pretty good time to ask you, how did you get customers to vote for shit coffee? Yes, this is a good time to segue. What a segue. Massive professional. Hi, gorgeous. This cuddly creature is an Indonesian civet cat, an animal whose precious droppings... I think he's pooping. Is he pooping? Oh, yes, that's a pooping. <laughs> ...hold the secret to a luxury coffee craze. Isn't that kind of... I don't know about the listeners out there, but for me, there's nothing better than waking up in the morning and swishing around my mouth the refined, elegant an exotic taste of shit coffee. No, we're not talking about Blem 43, but instead we're referring to the Indonesian delicacy of Kopi Luwak, a coffee that has literally been refined by the digestive tract of what is ostensibly a very cute cat. Our brief to Francis? Find a way to get our almond milk, decaf, mocha choker latte loving Australians to pick up the tab on a cat poo coffee. As always, Francis will be asked to respond in our patented taking the piss format. That's problem, insight, strategy, and solution. Let's see how she went. Okay, Francis, how did you go? I I loved this. And as I was saying to you before, I love your your strategic tool, PISS, P-I-S-S, problem, (laughs) insight, strategy, and solution. (laughs) I'm going to take that one with me. So, um, look... You know, truth well told, start with the truth, um, which we were just chatting about before, which is um, that, you know, it's it's cruelty. It is cruelty in a cup. You know, the... the um, and it's... It not only is um, the animal cruelty thing a big part of the, um, uh, the category, 
Um, but it's also really, it's now becoming more talked about. Um, so it's kind of part of the communications challenge. So the truth is hard to hear, but if you were a brand of Civet Poo Coffee, um, the truth is that um, it is, you're increasingly becoming known as, and I found this online, coffee for assholes by assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Coffee for assholes by, by assholes. assholes. Yeah, right. So I would kind of reframe the problem to go, um, you know, and and the reason for the cruelty is that uh, these kind of shy nocturnal animals are caged, right, and yeah. force-fed um, coffee cherries mm. um, to the point that, you know, apparently some of them are eating off their own arms and legs, which oh, is wow. horrendous. Yeah. Because of caffeine? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, is... and because they're they're nocturnal, they're shy, so they're put in these you know horrific, and and because because you know tourism um, and this fascination with with civet poo coffee is um, is driving fueling know, this, the, yeah, the this, economy the, there, fueling this economy to the point that eighty percent of civet poo coffee is fake apparently. Wow, um, that's so a good thing. Then. <laughs> I would say that. Um, you know, as as a as a leading brand of civet poo coffee, we would want to address the longer term problem, which is, um, you know, coffee for assholes by assholes. So my insight was um, that almond milk macchiato drinkers over-index as vegans. <laughs> I haven't actually found that in the data, but yeah, I bet yeah. we would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roy, um, Roy, Roy's the boy. We'll check afterwards. <laughs> no, we'll confirm yeah. Roy. So I, I, I reckon they over-index as vegans and, and, um, and probably green, green voters. So they're, they're wannabe activists looking for their next cause to fight for. Um, so why not be the coffee brand strategy, be the coffee brand that takes a stand against animal cruelty? So how do you do that? Um, and I was thinking, why not, why not kind of take a, a tech approach where, um, and this is inspired by, have you guys been to Mona? In, in Hobart? No, I know of it. Okay. Uh, me also, and it I'm is. like a massive contemporary art fan, so I'm like, okay. shame. It is shame okay. not to have gone. So I don't know if they still have it there, but there's this beautiful, um, maybe the wrong word, there's a, a, a very awesome uh, artwork, which is um, a machine that simulates bowels. I have heard of and it. And it's, yeah, so it's an artwork that poos. Uh, and that inspired me to think of how could we use cutting edge technology to replicate the digestive process of a civet cat? And um, basically our solution would be create a vegan cruelty-free version of civet coffee. Okay. And you could probably charge more for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 200 bucks a cup. <laughs> Absolutely. That's brilliant. And, and I, think, I think the campaign would definitely just be like watching this machine poo. <laughs> At the Mona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's awesome. I I want to ask you one question just yes. based off the back yes. of that. Do you say thank you to chatbots at all? Do I what? Do you say, when you're talking to a chatbot or a robot on the internet, will you say thank you when it gives you good information? Hmm. Meaning, will we recognize the humanity of these things? Yeah, I wonder if, uh, if yeah. one day the vegans might might start becoming robo vegans <laughs> and, and thinking it that way. Absolutely. I mean, I think the um, you know the connection between uh, humans and machines will be fascinating, um, and 
you know, the more we really unpack and understand, um, you know, the ethics and the humanity around that stuff, the, the more interesting it gets. Brilliant. Did you think about the comms at all? The actual launching of the Civil Poo. Well, I thought machine. I did think about like this awesome, uh, you know, uh, inspired by Mona, this awesome kind of spectacle of a machine that poos, um, and uh, and yeah, I think you'd definitely you'd probably go um, if if we wanted to shift from kind of being this, you know, animal magic. Um, kind of intrigue to cutting edge tech yeah um then what are the channels that you know we'd we'd find the same audience right who on the one hand are coffee connoisseurs but on the other hand are really progressive interested in innovation um so we'd find this new space um and and world to be a part of that was much more about um maybe the future brilliant i love it Love okay, we'll uh, we'll put that in the deck and we'll release it with the uh, with the podcast with your permission. So uh, any civet poo coffee brands can get on the. We definitely uh, well, we we'd definitely have to mode. like you know capture the content of building the machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'd be in fast company for sure. The machine yeah. would have to look and resemble a civet of sorts, right? This would need to be a furry machine. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. Maybe it's a Tasmanian tiger. That's how we bring it back. Oh, wow. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, we could do all sorts of stuff. Possibilities yeah. are endless. Well, thank you so much for Pleasure. coming on the show, Francis. Thanks for uh, having thank you me. So much, we, we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, the last question that we're going to ask out of all the questions is, can you recommend us to any other people to talk to? Do you, yeah, Can you twist an course. arm or two for us? Of course. Us? Of course I can. All right. Do I have to name them now? Yeah, we would <laughs> love no, you. No, we would you love you to. <laughs> this should be off air. <laughs> we'll take it off is air. There a, is there anything you want to plug or anything you want to get out there? Um, a shout out to Arthur um, listeners. Yeah, shout out to the um, the mentors that I've had: Kate, Sandy, Nicole. Awesome women in my life. Brilliant, epic! Awesome. What a way to end it. Thank you. Nice one. You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince, and my name is Max. And we're both planners living in Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcastsoap at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Chillin'. You son of a pitch.